I remember the day rather well. I was sitting in trigonometry class when I was a junior in high school. My best friend, or at least one of my best friends, was sitting next to me. I had recently turned 17, and in those days, nobody really engaged in small talk or knew much about what small talk was. We basically just asked each other questions if we felt like it or not. It was around this time when we were getting ready to apply to college. In English class, we had all had to write sample personal statements for college applications. The question we needed to answer in this sample essay was to tell a story from our lives which somehow shaped us into who we are today. It was one of those typical personal statement questions. Back to my friend sitting next to me in math class. Let's call him Brian, after the Beatles' manager, Brian Epstein. The reason why I'm connecting him to Brian Epstein will become clear in a minute. Brian and I were not only in the same math class, we were also in the same English class, as well as several other classes. And our sample personal statements were due that day. As I mentioned, at that age, no one made small talk or just asked questions to fill the silence. Nevertheless, something compelled me to ask Brian about his personal statement. How did your personal statement turn out, I asked, or something along those lines. Good, Brian said. How about yours? Fine, I guess, I said. Silence. What did you write about, I asked him. Just about freshman year, he answered quickly. Then, silence. I don't know what came over me in that instant. I was 17, a junior in high school. Normally when a conversation died, as this one seemed to have done, I just let it go. I didn't know any better. All of that advice we hear today, take interest in your conversation partner, don't talk too much about yourself, make eye contact, ask how and why questions instead of yes or no questions, simply did not exist for me back then. Yet, in this moment, something compelled me to ask Brian a follow-up question. And it was not just any follow-up question, it was a very probing one. Can I see it? I asked. This question just kind of shot out of me, like the accidental firing of a handgun. I had no intentions behind it, no expectations from it, not even awareness that it was happening. In that moment, and to this day, I was and have been mystified by this wholly out-of-character gesture. Meanwhile, Brian suddenly looked like a deer caught in headlights. What? he said. Well, now I really was curious. Can I see your essay? I asked again. Then, Brian looked at me and smiled sheepishly, as though his parents had just caught him smoking a joint or something. At that moment, he did something wholly unexpected. He reached into his backpack, pulled out the personal statement, and laid it down on my desk. Uh, what? It took me about five seconds to realize why Brian had been so cagey about the essay. His entire personal statement was all about me. Yes, me. A couple of years prior to that, Brian and I had been in a rock band with a few other guys. 
Even though we were just teenagers, we were all obsessed with this band we were in. We wrote songs, recorded songs together, played shows, even made a website. However, about midway through our freshman year of high school, Brian and the other guys sat me down one afternoon and gave me some bad news. I was out of the band. They had found another, older guitarist, a sophomore, who was, and I will admit it, significantly better at guitar than I was, to replace me. Brian had written his personal statement about his guilt over kicking his best friend out of the band two years earlier. And I think the reason he showed it to me relatively willingly was to further cleanse his feeling of guilt. He saw a window for confession and he took it, apparently. This is why I call him Brian, which is, of course, not his real name. Brian Epstein was the manager of the Beatles. In 1962, he called the Beatles drummer at that time, Pete Best, into his office and told him that, sorry, but he was out of the group. The next day, Ringo Starr was behind the drums instead. And a few weeks later, the Beatles had become England's biggest band. I am proud to say that my old band, by contrast, broke up just a few weeks after kicking me out. Love, love me do. You know I love you. I'll always be true. So please love me do. Love me do. You are listening to The Shrift, featuring Pete Best on the drums. Life to 10, 1 Kings 3. Another person who liked to ask follow-up questions was Sigmund Freud. Freud came of age in Vienna in the late 19th century. Freud worked as a neurologist, and he was trying to figure out how to treat patients with hysteria or various other neuroses. In order to treat these illnesses, Freud realized that simply having a normal conversation with his patients was not sufficient. He had to probe deeper deep into their minds, into their memories and dreams, into their subconscious. The art or method which Freud developed in the 1890s would come to be known as psychoanalysis. In order to get his patients to reveal their true selves, he had them lie on a couch in his office where they could feel as free and as vulnerable as possible. Freud would then give them very careful instructions proposed them questions which would allow their repressed thoughts to emerge to the surface. Psychoanalysis is, of course, a kind of art form. The therapist must know precisely what words to say to his patients in order to get them talking and revealing. Freud's psychoanalysis sent shockwaves through Vienna 
and later through all of Europe for various reasons. In order to understand part of the reason for the shock, we must consider the society in which psychoanalysis emerged. This was Vienna, one of the most gentlemanly, proper, repressed cultures the world has ever known. This was also the late 19th century, the Victorian era. Conversations in the public sphere were controlled by strict etiquette, by thousands of lurking taboos, by notions of honor and chivalry. Put another way, this was a society in which people did not reveal their true selves, not in public, perhaps not to their spouse, maybe not even to themselves. People went out into the world with layers of psychological armor. It was, in short, a repressed society. Freud broke through all of these social norms. He asked people about their childhood, about their genitalia, about their sexual fetishes, about their dreams, about their violent desires, and about things 1,000 times worse, which I dare not even mention on the shrift. Freud asked these questions because he knew that this was how he could really get to know his patients. But he did so artfully, cleverly, masterfully. He knew that, for example, if he just were to clumsily ask a woman about her latest sex dream, he wouldn't get much out of her. In the Haftarah for this week, we read again from the Book of Kings. This week, we get the legendary story of King Solomon and the baby. In this story, two women, who seem to be prostitutes, come to King Solomon with the following well-known problem. Both of them had babies about three days ago. These two women sleep together in the same bedroom of what is presumably a brothel. Three evenings ago, each woman went to sleep in her own respective bed with her own respective newborn baby by her side. One of the women, however, turned over in the night and crushed her new baby, causing it to die. This woman then went over to the other woman's bed and switched the baby corpse with the living baby. Now each woman is claiming, before King Solomon, to be the baby's mother. There are no witnesses. How does Solomon figure out which mother to believe? Well, Solomon pulls out his sword and says, I will cut the baby in half. This way, you will each get a half of the baby, and all will be even. At this moment, the first woman says, No, don't cut the baby in two. I would rather that my friend have it than that the baby die. The second woman, meanwhile, says, Fine with me. Cut the baby. That way it belongs to no one. Aha, Solom exclaims. Let the baby live and give the baby to the first woman, as she is clearly the baby's real mother. This story has long stood as an example of King Solomon's boundless wisdom. He was able to psychoanalyze both women by putting their claims to the test. His plan worked brilliantly, and justice was done. When I first heard this story as a young child, I wasn't very impressed with King Solomon's wisdom. It just wasn't very believable that the second woman would so readily fall for this trap. Moreover, why would anybody want to have half of a baby? 
A more realistic story would have been that both women reject King Solomon's offer to cut the baby in two. However, I now see the story much differently. King Solomon was actually exceedingly clever here. Let's think for a moment about how the baby died. The mother rolled over on this baby while it was sleeping and suffocated it to death. She then swapped the babies. Only a truly deviant, sick person would behave this way. Solomon sized her up right away. He realized that one of the mothers was probably a rather sadistic person, maybe even bloodthirsty. He sensed that his trap would work because one of the two women would actually take twisted pleasure in seeing a baby cut in two. There was also the legal element. Probably somewhere in the back of the mother's mind, she knew that she might face legal charges for manslaughter for suffocating her baby to death. If the living baby were to be cut in half and buried, then she would have had a much better chance of not being prosecuted since the evidence would be disposed of. Solomon hence knew that whichever of the two mothers was murderous would jump for joy at his offer to cut the baby in half. And obviously, the real mother, the sane, grounded, balanced mother, would immediately object to Solomon's offer. What Solomon demonstrates in this story is the art of getting others to reveal themselves. I took a page out of Solomon's book when I asked Brian to show me his personal statement. Freud, too, also seems to have learned from the great King Solomon in his dedication to getting to the bottom of people through well-timed, well-orchestrated psychoanalysis. One way we can be sure not to learn about our acquaintances is through small talk, through superficial conversations, through following social conventions in all of our interactions. We often converse with others almost on autopilot. As soon as there is a pause in the conversation, we excuse ourselves. We dare not ask follow-up questions, lest they seem silly or too personal or too unconventional. We often chat like the denizens of Freud's Victorian Vienna, avoiding taboo subjects, disavowing the personal, keeping everyone and even ourselves at arm's length. I shudder when I think to myself how close I was to not asking Brian that follow-up question, how close I was to letting his initial response that he wrote his college essay about his freshman year be the end rather than the beginning of the interaction. Of course, we are not kings and queens. We can't, like King Solomon, threaten our interlocutors with the mutilation and death of their progeny in order to get to know them better. We also can't throw someone down on the psychoanalyst couch within a few minutes, or even hours, of meeting them. Nor can we demand they open up their bag and hand over to us personal documents. So, instead, I would like to offer you my 10th life tip, which you should use at your own discretion with more than a heft of common sense. To get people to reveal a little more of themselves to you than is normally possible in automatized, autopilot conversation, there is something we can do. What we can do is to overcome the urge to let conversations die at the moment when no one wants to push further by getting specific. In conversation, we need to get specific, both about ourselves and about our interlocutor. With all things, including other people, it is the details, 
the seemingly trivial, insignificant, frivolous details which will reveal to you everything. Don't just ask someone what city they're from. Find out how many trees they had in their front yard and what kind of trees they are. Don't just ask people if they liked college. Find out the name of their freshman doormate and whether the two got along. Don't just ask people how their day was or what they did that day. Find out what time they got up, how many times they hit the snooze button, whether they prefer soft or medium bristles on their toothbrush, and why. If you do this properly, you will make King Solomon and Freud and my 17-year-old self very proud. Love me, do.